Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. You are listening to episode number 49 of the Gateworld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds get together and talk about Stargate. Today we're going back in time to Stargate SG-1 history. We're looking at season 6 of one of our favorite shows. But first we have a little interview preview. This one is with actress Colleen Renison, who played Cassandra on the series. And we've got some news, and we've got some site features. And David, how are you doing this week? I am good. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty well. I just saw Transformers tonight. Have you seen Transformers? I have no intentions of seeing that movie. I was not planning on seeing it, in the theater at least, but a couple of guys wanted to go, so I went with the guys, and it was an assault on the senses, which is what I expected. Of course it is. I mean, that's what it is. But is it any good? Uh, if you like the first one, you like the second one. They're pretty much the same thing. No, I didn't like the first one. It's the only movie that I've ever walked out of afterwards and had my eyes pounding as I tried to get to bed mm-hmm. early in the morning. Uh, and that includes Cloverfield. And intensity for the sake of intensity, a good movie does not make. Yeah, I'm still processing it. I don't know what to say about it other than I just ached from head to toe afterwards. Would you see it again? No, I wouldn't see it again. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for July 1st, 2009. We knew it was coming, but we have official confirmation now, so now we really know that it's coming. Stargate SG-1, Children of the Gods, the final cut, will be heading your way on July the 21st. It includes not only the uh, commentary between Brad Wright and Richard Dean Anderson, which we've been harping about for uh, weeks and weeks now, but it also includes a Back to the Beginning featurette. Remastered, recut, and reimagined. Are you going to pick this one up? I am for sure. It's uh, partly because of the scarcity of new Stargate material coming out this year, but also because this is part of Stargate history, and if it's as significant to change as we all hear it is, new score from Joel Goldsmith, new visual effects. You know, Brad was talking about this in terms of not just re editing and taking out some stuff. But also going back to the original dailies and, you know, choosing alternate takes, which I think is really interesting. It could mm-hmm. give Children of the Gods a, a totally different feel. You know, I was on the fence for a long time about this, and I for a while I wasn't going to because, I mean, it's kind of like remastering Star Trek The Motion Picture. The original product was only so good. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, Children of the Gods is not Stargate SG-1's strong point. Mm-hmm. Uh the show was simply much better than that and became much more than that. So it is what it is. They're but, not, they're not going to make it into continuum. I've decided that I will give it a chance and I will pick it up. When's that coming out? July 21st on the same weekend as Comic Con San Diego. See you there. Now available as of this week is the fifth season of Stargate Atlantis. Season five is on DVD now in region one. That's North America. Sports the biggest array of special features to date, and they are all great. I've uh, been privileged to see all of them, and they are really good. Yeah, you've been watching them? Yes. So this is five discs. It's all 20 episodes. It's audio commentaries for most of the episodes, uh, not quite all of them. And then mm-hmm. I'm looking at the bonus features list right now. There's Showdown, Ronin versus Tyre, which is on Broken Ties. Interview with James Bamford, interview with uh, a little bit with Jason... Submerging the Stargate is going to be from the Shrine. Uh, Conversation with Joe Flanagan. There's a little featurette on uh, Michael Shanks' appearance in the mid-season two-parter. Daniel Jackson goes to Atlantis. 
They got uh, an interview with Michael. Deleted scenes. Two sections of deleted scenes. That's good. No bloopers, unfortunately. And that's just like a third of the bonus features that we've mentioned so far. So there's a ton on this. It's now in stores, and you can order it on Amazon.com. Click through GateWorld if you want to support the site. And the suggested price is $49.98 US. And Amazon's price, always subject to change, but as of right now, it's $32.49. So that's 35% off. Gateworld Features. Our interview with Michael Kopsa is up on the site. Darren, did you have a good time with Michael? I had a great time. I haven't listened to the interview yet, so I hope it, it shines through, uh, at, at least as of the time that we're recording this podcast, which is back on Sunday. This was fun because they did the, the Vancouver Actors Panel with, I think, about six people who had guest starred on SG-1 in smaller roles over the years. And uh, we didn't know these guys were going to be there, so we didn't prepare to uh, assault them with interview requests, but we had mm-hmm. the opportunity. So you took off in one direction with Kirby Morrow. And I took off in the other direction with Michael Kopsa, and we landed in the green room, and I felt very free not having a notepad and, and pre-written questions. We just shot the breeze about his his acting career in Vancouver and his Stargate experiences. The only two interviews on GateWorld that I know of that were, that were conducted simultaneously. Yeah. Last week on the Friday Five, we looked at the top five episodes for the best of Braytac. We did Jacob when the Friday Five started, and Jacob and Braytac are those two recurring guest stars that are just, they're like family on SG-1. So my favorite Braytac episodes, number five is The Serpent's Lair, the season premiere of season two. And if you want to see the other four, head over to GateWorld right now. And coming up this Friday on The Five, we're talking about sweet alien ships. This past week with the GateWorld Gallery, we've been continuing to update with Stargate screen captures for the DVDs. Last week, we updated with Stargate Ultimate Edition. This week, we're updating with Stargate SG-1 Season 1 on DVD, which includes the raw Easter egg, behind-the-scenes with the producers, casting crew featurette, costume design featurette, and profiles on Sam Carter and General Hammond. So next week, we're obviously going to cover Season 2 of SG-1, which will include the production design featurette, profile on Dr. Jackson, and profile on Tilk. Anything that's unique video-wise in those special features will get screen caps for the gallery section. And we have a brand new interview coming up in the next few days with Colleen Renison, who played Cassandra, the second Cassandra, on Stargate SG-1. She was in Rite of Passage in Season 5. Correct. Was that the only one she did? She played Allie in Bane. Right. Rite of Passage was her only Cassandra episode, though, right? Yes, that's right. The last time we saw Cassandra, too, we talked long about these two characters. A lot about her career. I mean, she started when she was five years old. So it was fascinating to talk about it. And she's 21 now. Uh, She was candid. We talked for a half hour uh, about some of her work on The Outer Limits, particularly a very spooky episode called Under the Bed in Season 1. You can see that on Hulu right now. We uh, talked about her role in uh, Season 2's Bane as Allie. Talked about the first time, that was the first time that she ever had to eat on camera. We never hear this stuff, so I, I'm fascinated by this. I'm excited about this one. In the midst of all the uprising over the death of Janet Frazier in Season 7, there was a little bit of a, hey, what the heck? Why isn't Cassandra here? You know, at least... She's mentioned. Give the actress a hundred bucks and don't give her any dialogue, but have her standing there at the funeral. I thought that would have been a nice touch. Especially with uh, Heroes in Season 7, the Frasier character died. Were you aware of that? No, I wasn't. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah, she was killed. (gasps) 
That's one of the questions that I wanted to ask because uh, a lot of fans were wondering if you had a scheduling conflict because there's a memorial scene in that episode and it would make a lot of sense that you would be invited back for that. I was never, I never got uh, contact on, about any of that. Wow, okay. It's a tearjerker, Colleen. It's considered by many fans to be the greatest, the greatest episodes in Stargate. Really? Yeah. You're getting me really excited about all this. I'm going to start getting on my, getting on my gate game. <laughs> and and hearing you talk about it and people certainly that I've met as well like in my travels in the world um people really connect to this show and whenever they meet me like it's one of the the projects like I've done a lot of different things but people really recognize me for Stargate mm-hmm. and the one episode you know what I mean and I feel so grateful that I got to um you know, sort of be brought into this fold of characters. Mm-hmm. It would be a lot of fun to, um, to, you know, like elaborate on that and, and see more happen. But um, I'm sure, I'm sure that all the the big men upstairs have a master plan. The main discussion. Our main discussion topic this week is season six of Stargate SG One. As we talked about, I think it was uh, end of the show last week. Season six is really a turning point for the show. This was when the show went to Sci-Fi Channel from Showtime, mm-hmm. so it had a bigger audience going to basic cable in the U.S., a uh, bigger potential audience. Uh, started with a, this uh, two-part premiere, Redemption, which we'll talk about, and the show had lost one of its main signature cast members in Michael Shanks. Uh, yeah. Came back and did, did a number of guest appearances throughout the season, but we were we were getting used to a new character. This was largely the season of integrating Jonas into the team. I view season six as losing two cast members, particularly Richard Dean Anderson. His daughter's getting older, and he asked very appropriately mm. to have his time curbed on um, on the show. And this was the beginning of the writers getting handcuffed. We see it with Frozen, where he's written out at the end of the episode so that they can do a show without him, and then he comes back in abyss. This season, in my opinion, is the beginning of the long slope to the end of SG-1. The show, in my opinion, had uh, already done its best in seasons four and five. This is, this is my opinion. And keep in mind, it's very high on my list, so these are some da- this is some dang good television compared to a lot of other television yeah, that, that I mentioned. That slope is very small grade. It, it takes a long Extremely. time to get Extremely. there. By the time season six premieres, the show obviously still has a lot of life left in it and a lot of legs. But it, it does. It feels like, I wouldn't say the beginning of the end by any means, but it feels like a different show. Seasons yep. one through five are very often, I think, described appropriately as kind of a, a classic Stargate. And season six feels more like seven and eight. It's There's kind of a, a vibe that changes. Uh, mm-hmm. And just in rewatching some of these episodes, there's there's kind of a certain tonality. It's not just that, that Jonas is there instead of Daniel, but there's a certain feel to the show mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's just a little bit different. In my opinion, Daniel was the heart and soul of SG-1. That's, that's solely my opinion. And I, I think that uh, we can't get by before we're dipping into these episodes without talking briefly about uh, the impact that this had on fandom. You wrote an article about the state of fandom, and man, you, you tore up the floor about that one. Later, you followed it up with another one when Michael Shanks returned, but there were lines being drawn um, among the fans. There were. You'll have to send me links to those, because I haven't read those editorials in, in quite a while. For those listeners who were a part of Stargate fandom back in 2002-2003, when Season 6 was airing on Sci-Fi Channel, this was this was a 
a minor civil war here. A lot of fans uh, had Daniel as their favorite character for five years, and uh, some of those, I think it's safe to say, watched the show almost exclusively for Daniel and for Michael Shanks. And uh, when he left, they went with him and made a a whole lot of noise about it and continued Mm -hmm. to... I don't want to paint the entire Save Daniel Jackson movement with, with a broad brush, but there were instances of of uh, definite nastiness. It got bad there for yeah. a while. I think there's been a lot of healing. Obviously, Michael coming back was, was a huge factor in that. Season 6 is really a mixed bag of, in my opinion, ups and downs. So, shall we talk about the ups? We should. Let's uh, make sure to remind people first, if you're sitting in front of a computer and want to know quickly, at a glance, what the heck we're talking about, go open up the Season 6 episode guide on GateWorld. It's GateWorld.net slash sg1 slash s6 my favorite episode of season six and this says something about season six because abyss is also in my top three for the entire series 10 years 214 episodes abyss is one of the finest hours of stargate sg1 this is when jack runs off with his toker symbiote and gets caught by ball and tortured over and over again, killed, resurrected in the sarcophagus, only to be tortured again, and killed, and tortured and killed. And Ascended Daniel shows up, and it makes for some awesome, amazing character moments, and this dynamic of this friendship between these two guys. What do you think? That's just how I feel about it. What do you think? That is also one of my favorite episodes, my favorite certainly for this season. Also, Ball's finest hour, in my opinion, and Cliff Simon shares that view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a truly excellent episode, but not to sound redundant, uh, I will say that The Changeling is my favorite for season six, for the sake of this conversation. Also, another episode where Daniel returns, um, uh, followed thirdly by Full Circle, but we'll get to that way later. The Changeling was penned by Christopher Judge, and I think Brad Wright um, did some rewrites on that one. I can't be... Yeah, Brad Wright did that. Um and it's just a, a fine hour of television. Tilk is, uh, is using his symbiote as a life preserver. Uh, and it's a, it's a cool, heady story. I mean, it's, it's really cerebral. What's going on? You're trying to figure out what the heck is happening to him, where he is. And Daniel comes and straightens him out. I have family members in, emergency, in the emergency medical field. I watched it with my dad, and he's like, that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> Sam says over and out. No one says over and out. They say out. No, so he really went to town on that. But uh, it is a fine hour of TV and uh, is up there uh, among my favorites. Chris just mopped up the floor. Yeah, it's really nice. You can just see Chris Judge saying, you know, I want to do something different. I want to I want to show a different version of Teal'c, let alone a different side of him. So this is Teal'c if he was not a Jaffa. If he yeah. was just a guy working in, in the fire department on Earth. Mm-hmm. So makes for some really interesting stuff and and the ending is very touching yeah. when you see what's really going on and that he's he's putting his own life on the line to save Braytac. Yeah. Yeah, the kidney metaphor with the symbiote was so compelling. Mm-hmm. Very real. I bought it. Book mm-hmm. line and sinker. It's really nice to see Musetta Vander back as Shauna. Yes. She is excellent. I need to put her on my interview schedule. Yeah, you do. She's great. Hi Darren and David. Shirt and tie here once more in Ireland. My favorite episode of season six would have to be the two-parter, Redemption 1 and 2. The tight storyline from Robert Cooper, with Maestro Wood behind the camera, provided for me the highlight of the season. 
This multi-story tale showed our heroes in real jeopardy as the gate was used as a weapon against them, with even Sam struggling to find a solution. Not only are we presented with a father and son conflict with Tilk and Ryak, but also a very credible threat from Anubis' ancient weapon. The interaction of Jack with potential replacements for Daniel gave some lighthearted comedy, and the reintroduction of Rodney McKay gave Carter a great sparring partner. Jonas, to my mind, set the tone for his stint on the show with his calm and gentle suggestion of removing the gate from the SGC. I particularly love that scene where he stands with his travel mug in hand on the ramp up to the gate, just waiting for someone to ask him what he's doing. It was beautifully played by Corin Nimick. The show had it all with the introduction of the X-302 and some great visual effects with Jack at the controls. The resolution of the storylines and the placement of Jonas on the team seemed to bring all the threads together and teed up for what my mind was one of the best seasons of the show. With regard to the absence of Michael Shanks in the cast, it most certainly changed the dynamic of the team, which is the core of SG-1. And that voice of conscience that had checked all of SG-1's actions was missing, and the team came and certainly changed. I don't believe season six was better or worse for the absence of Michael Shanks, just very, very different. The season started off with a, a strong Tilk beat as well. It did. Redemption was a two-parter to kick off the season. Usually we get a season finale with a cliffhanger, and then it's resolved at the beginning of the next season. Because they were moving networks, they didn't want to do that. We get a nice big two-part opener from Rob Cooper, and uh, there's this one story with Anubis's attack on Earth and this other story of Tilk and Ryak and their relationship and Neil Dennis is back as Ryak we haven't yes. seen him since I think family season in season two. two he was a little kid and now he's he's on the cusp of adulthood and, and this relationship between these, these two guys I thought really helped to launch Tilk into a new direction starting in season mm-hmm. six Anubis really brings to bear his attack on Earth using a Stargate destroyer built by the ancients, which I still do not understand. It's a good couple hours of, of television. Jonas Quinn's involvement uh, starts becoming more influential. We, we see him very buff this year. He has obviously found himself some major steroids uh, while he has or been a Stargate he's been fan. working out because he's stuck inside the base. Yeah, that's true. Pumping iron. It was good. The fact that we lost a Stargate in this one, that was that was pretty impactful. That was big. And not only did our Stargate blow up, but uh, this was also the episode where we introduced the X-302 interceptor craft. This was supposed to be Earth's first craft that was capable of interstellar travel. It had uh, hyperdrive on it, which we tried to use and did not work. The Naquadria never worked didn't even work with Prometheus. We should also remember that Redemption was uh, bringing back Rodney McKay, David Hewlett. Yes. And he's uh, back from season five, and he's not really a bad guy anymore. This is kind of our... our this is his turning point. At, ...at starting to redeem him and making him more of a sympathetic character. One who not only lusts after Sam Carter, but kind of has a crush on her, too. That's right. I was more attracted to you when I hated you. Yeah, and he's he's got those great lines about... Uh, you know, hey Anubis, this is your agent, you're playing it way over the top. That sets up that character for rising the premiere of Atlantis. Another thing when I think about season six is this was the year where we started our own ships. This is where yes. Prometheus comes along, which obviously becomes very, very significant from this point on out, especially once we get to the Daedalus class ships and we get to season nine and ten, and those become a, a much more foundational part of storytelling for yeah. the show. Yeah. This is where it all begins. Yeah, but you know what? A great space episode, in my opinion, was Descent. I love Descent. Descent it is, is so awesome. good. Thor has piloted 
a huge gift to Earth. And he's in control of this ship, and it crashes into the ocean. It's just a great running around a ship episode. Great Jack episode, in my opinion. Major Davis is there. You know, we have a red shirt who gets the Ninja Jaffa pull out their swords and somehow avoid hacking him to death. You know, he's just lying there dead like a fish. <laughs> yeah, Major Davis is in this. Uh, Jacob is in this. Jacob is in this, yes. Really memorable great. stuff, like uh, like Jack and Sam being trapped in this corridor that's filling with water. You know, there's a moment where Jacob thinks that, that they're dead. And one of my favorite visual effect shots was uh, Jonas swimming underwater and activating the rings and yes. running to, to a different part of the ship with all the water. That was so well done. Now we get to a little bit of a story arc. Frozen, Nightwalkers, and Abyss, 4, 5, and 6, are a bit of a story arc. And there's a question that we got about this one. Ungolded Una says, It always bothered me that when sci-fi shows the reruns of season 6 of SG-1, they show Abyss before Frozen. It really doesn't make any sense. Have you guys heard of any reason why they do that, or have any thoughts on why they do that? So Frozen, Jack gets deathly ill and has to get a Toker symbiote. Then he's gone for Nightwalkers, episode 5. And then we see his, his Toker symbiote has taken him to, to Ball's planet and leaves him. The only thing that I can think of would be that it was the production order. That's it, exactly. I know for a fact that Abyss was, was uh, earlier in the, in the production order. You'd be surprised how little of Richard Dean Anderson is actually in that episode. That's Dan Che. In, in a lot of those shots. Maybe it was the audio commentary for the episode that they had RDA for a, a day or two for Abyss. Cliff Simon spent most of his time with, with Dan Shea. Hmm. Maybe that's where I heard it was Cliff's interview. Abyss was first in the production order, and this is what often happens is the studio delivers the episodes and the list of episodes, and they give the network the production order. And so when they first aired, first run on Sci-Fi Channel, they aired in the correct order. The producers made sure of it. Uh, but they've been using the production order ever since. So we've been seeing yeah. Abyss out of order for something like six years now. No one's bothered to tell them? Yeah. Natasha says, By far the best episode of season six was Abyss. Great performances by Richard Dean Anderson, Michael Shanks, and Cliff Simon. A great team episode as everyone contributed to Jack's escape. We also see a side of Jack that we have not seen since the original movie. A Jack who is about to give up and like the movie... It's Daniel who's there to stop Jack from losing hope. There's a lot of uh, feedback this week, and we're not going to get to read them all, but uh, Abyss is such a fantastic episode. It ends up being the favorite for a lot of people. Rachel500 says, Abyss is a classic, a great mix of drama, pathos, and some humor. Everyone just seemed to pull out great performances, especially Richard Dean Anderson and Michael Shanks. I also do have a huge soft spot for Allegiance, though. Braytac and Jacob Selmak together is just wonderful. Should we jump out of order for a moment and talk about Allegiance? Sure, we can talk about Allegiance. The strengthening of the Jaffa Tauri Tokra Alliance. This is a good episode. This is a fortification of the alliance between these three powers. When the episode aired, I realized that this was not something I had thought about a whole lot. We fight against the Gould alongside the Tokra, the resistance movement within the Gould. And then we fight against the Gould alongside the Jaffa in other episodes. The Rebel Jaffa, Teal'c and his buddies, uh, Rachnor is in this one. The Jaffa and the Tok'ra have been fighting one another for thousands of years. Yeah, we never fight with them together, side by side. And, and we learn here that there are deep divisions between these two groups, even though they have a common enemy. Uh, as, as Jacob says in the episode, every time a Tok'ra has died in the last X number of 
centuries it's been uh, Jaffa holding the staff weapon. They're not going to exactly be buddy buddy, but uh, uh, this this is a good show. A lot of great stuff for Carmen as as Jacob Selmak and uh, and Tony as Braytac for uniting those those groups. Braytac is especially good. This Allegiance made my top five list for Braytac's character, uh, and yep. it's because he's presumed dead for a third of the episode, mm-hmm. and then has this this uh, awesome moment where he comes back and saves the day, blows the hell out of the Ashrak, and has this great little speech. Frozen, you only gave two stars. I really enjoy this episode, all based on Anna Grauer's performance as Ayana. She was good. And she's funny! She was one of my first interviews, Anna was, for the mm-hmm. for the website. Mispronounced her name. Yeah, she was a really nice guest star, especially because she didn't have all that much dialogue. She really mm-hmm. had to bring it. She didn't even have dialogue in Atlantis in the pilot. That's right. Fortunately, she'll have dialogue in the universe. Yeah, this is uh, the the ancient woman that we find frozen in the ice in Antarctica in Frozen. This is the same character who is at the very, very beginning of Rising. A nice tip of the hat. Nice connect the dots, which was originally written for Lost City. Nightwalkers. What can you say about Nightwalkers? What can you say that's good about Nightwalkers? It had a different feel to it, man. Uh, there was a lot of night shooting, which is not normal for Stargate. Season 6 had a lot of night shooting, I think more than, than most of, of the other seasons, which I enjoy. So yeah, Sam, Teal'c, and Jonas basically do X-Files. They go to this small town in Oregon to to investigate the death of a scientist, and it turns out that the the whole town has been given cloned symbiotes. I believe so. So they're not all evil, maniacal system lord wannabes. All they're interested in is escaping. Yeah, well, there you go. It's uh, Stargate does the X-Files without yeah. Jack O'Neill. I wasn't a big fan of this one. Me neither. A lot of it had to do with the fact that this was the first episode in Stargate history that had no Jack whatsoever. And you mentioned RDA deliberately cutting back his time shooting in this season, and it results in episodes like Nightwalkers, and uh, as we'll talk about later, episodes like Smoke and Mirrors, where there's a deliberate mm-hmm. plot device that gets him off the screen and away from the center of the action. You also have to keep in mind, you know, we were on a new network, but there was also a feeling that this was definitely going to be the last year of the show. Yeah, they had that for a few years. Yeah. And so I think they, at, at this point, the thought process was, you know, we can we can make it to the finish line. Mm-hmm. And we'll use Rick a little bit less. We'll use our other characters a little bit more. Uh, you know, we've got a new character in Jonas to play around with. And, you know, season seven, as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, has to take the show into a different place. They were gearing up for Atlantis. Even in season seven, they were they were wrapping up. It's not until season nine that they were planning on another year after it. Dean Stockwell comes to Stargate in Shadowplay. Dean is one of my favorite actors of all time. I have adored mm-hmm. him on Quantum Leap and Battlestar Galactica and Stephen King's The Langoliers. It's a Jonas episode. It's a, it's it's answering a lot of questions that were left dangling from Meridian about Jonas and the the political climate on his world. It's a fine show. Lacked a lot for me. There, there's a there's a great clever mystery about the professor as to uh, what's going on with him and this this Colonian resistance movement that's trying to prevent the bombs from falling. Uh, and we find out that it's all in his head, and we mm-hmm. never under we never learn what happens to the guy. So yeah, this is uh, a beautiful mind. Had a beautiful mind been out yet? Yeah, yeah. I think this was deliberately made as, as sort of a Stargate homage to uh, okay. to that film. Dean Stockwell's great. I mean, he's a fantastic actor and, and was, was a major 
major guest star for us for this year, uh, for SG-1. I think that one of the themes that I see in Shadowplay, also in Nightwalkers, and then later on, again, in Smoke and Mirrors, is there's a lot of investigation in Season 6. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of... of Slow, methodical, okay, something has happened. Putting the dots together. And now yeah. our team has to go out and investigate it and figure out what's going on. And uh, that's what Shadowplay was. It was kind of a quiet investigation episode. But I like the expansion of, of Jonas's story in terms of his, his background and, and Kelowna or Langara or whatever you want to call his planet. The other guys. I have mixed feelings about this episode. In many ways, in my opinion, it was a stroke of genius and in other ways, it was a, a, an opportunity to get the nerds on screen. And John Billingsley is one of my favorite actors. Patrick McKenna, I think, did a fine job as Jay Felger. The character never really clicked for me. But in my opinion, John Billingsley saves this episode. Yeah, I'm also of two minds about the other guys. It's a Lower Decks episode. It's a Red Shirt episode, the alternate perspective, with a couple of scientists who work in the SGC. And it's Stargate trying to do comedy. And it almost works. It works in a lot of ways. But, I don't know, these characters just aren't likable enough for me. The first deus ex machina, in my opinion, is Cure. Really? What do you mean by that? Tritonin is something that we have been seeking for a long time. We have been seeking a solution to end the Jaffa dependence on Goa'uld. And Tritonin mm-hmm. is the beginning of that. They invented... The Jaffa, well, they obviously they invented the Jaffa. So then they wait six seasons, and then they invent this substance that will allow the Jaffa to thrive without symbiotes. I wouldn't call it a deus ex machina. It makes sense. And it also, I think the story works in that you would have a culture uh, who finds themselves in possession of a queen pumping out Gould symbiotes and would start to experiment and discover that if you ground up Gould, you can make something that is beneficial to your health. Shoshonen was introduced in this episode, then it was sort of off-screen. The, the, a, a couple of casual mentions of the Toker were, were now helping to to develop this and to synthesize it. And, you know, it's a major, major issue in this episode that, that you're taking symbiotes and you're doing this to symbiotes, especially when it turns out that they're children of Ageria, the mother of all Tokra. So they're potentially good symbiotes. I see on the episode guide that I only gave it two stars and I should probably up this one. Because this is one that I, I like to go back and rewatch every once in a while. I watched it a few mm-hmm. months ago. I like Pengar, the planet, and the Pengarans and their leader, is, I think, is a really sympathetic character. Um, yes. And uh, Zena Valk, played by yes. Alison Hossack, I think yes. is a really interesting character and, and her potential relationship with Jonas. It's a good show, and it's sad for Ajiria, because the Tok'ra could really use her to punch out a few more Tok'ra. So now we move into the mid-season two-parter, which was always weird to me that it was called a two-parter, because it's not a two-parter. It's two completely independent stories. Prometheus and Unnatural Selection are totally different. It just happens they decided to end Prometheus with Thor beaming on, after we retaken the ship, which had been hijacked by rogue NID agents. We're in space earlier than we were intending to launch the Prometheus... Thor needs the ship, so that's that's the, the cliffhanger to be continued. But they're, they're two very different episodes. Prometheus, I thought it was a great show. Uh, the introduction of a, of a great character, Julia Donovan, played by Kendall Cross, another one mm-hmm. I need to interview. I was in college at the time, and I remember that this, I remember the, the episode's cliffhanger, Thor beams aboard the ship, I'm like, holy cow, it's Thor, and he says, we need your help to stop the replicators, and Joel's replicator theme comes over, and I get huge goosebumps, mm-hmm. huge goosebumps. But then when Unnatural Selection comes along, 
I was really disappointed. It, really? The, the, it wasn't the impact that I was wanting. Human replicators? What a, what a turn was that? It's a psychological thing. I was expecting run and gun, shoot them, you know? Mm-hmm, and I like didn't enemies. really get that. Yeah. But Prometheus itself was, was, a, was a great show. The return of Adrian Conrad and, and Frank Simmons. We quickly offed them. It was a nice hyper-film shot sequence where Frank Simmons goes up against Teal'c and you can tell that it's filmed differently. Yeah, that was weird. I don't know why they, why they filmed it that way. Hyper-reality. creeps me out. Simmons was the replacement for Mayborn when Mayborn went yeah. good and started helping Jack out. And I was sad to lose him. He ended up being just kind of a flat, mustache-twirling NID agent. Yeah. Uh, what Prometheus does really well, I think, is... is uh, it's an example of, of Earth-based episodes, and there are a lot of Earth-based episodes in Season 6, uh, relatively speaking. Prometheus was a nice idea because it was, it was this idea of, well, we've got top-secret stuff that we're working with all the time, so what happens if we've got SGC personnel, we've got Area 51 personnel? The number of people who are in on the secret is growing and growing, so yeah. the potential for a leak is growing and growing, and so what if a reporter catches wind of this? Uh, yep. It was a nice little premise, I think, to set up the theft of the Prometheus. But unnatural selection, you thought, was... was... And as far as unnatural selection goes, here's a message from Memnark. Uh, Memnark says, As for how the show fared after Michael Shank's departure, I don't think there is an easy answer. Some of the wonder that Daniel brought to the table was lost. Although this loss caused an interesting change to the characters, there is a hardness to O'Neill in Season 6 that I think was very interesting and dynamic. His actions in unnatural selection, i.e. leaving Fifth behind, would not have happened if Daniel had been there. What do you think of that? Oh, I bet it would have happened. I think Daniel would have been pretty pissed, though, but I think it would have happened. There was a nice debate about it at the end of the episode, but, you know, Jonas doesn't have the sort of relationship with Jack where he can call him a stupid son of a bitch. Yeah, Jack will not let him get away with crap. Jonas is kept on a very short leash, I think, in, in many ways. Yeah. But I think Memnark is right that the loss of Daniel's character has an, a lasting impact on the team. Mm-hmm. In the case of O'Neill, it's it's sort of a hardness, and certainly when it comes to Jonas, there's there's a distance. There is a, a sense that he needs to prove himself. That's one of the things that comes organically out of, out of a television show where you eliminate a character. I mean, if you're writing it right, there will be impact. Like I said before, with Unnatural Selection, I was hoping for running and gunning uh, and shooting a lot of replicators and a new mega replicator mm-hmm. bug. I wasn't expecting human forms, so, so I was disappointed, disappointed with that. You at first. But the introduction of Fifth was very fascinating. Yeah, well, looking back on it now, all these years later, now that you know what it is and what comes of the human form replicators, how do you think it holds up? I think it holds up just fine. Do you like this episode? I like it more than I did originally. Let me tell you that. Because yeah. I, had been, I had been waiting for a very long time to see the, the conclusion of that. There's a very palpable sense from, from Nemesis onward, the season three finale, that the replicators are, are a huge, huge problem that our most powerful, most advanced allies are not going to be able to stop. And that's... In a lot of ways, that's realized in this episode. We've basically taken over the Asgard homeworld, and now the surface is completely covered with replicator blocks. Um, but, you know, in other ways, it's it's almost like, okay, now what? There aren't yeah. really any any bugs running around, and and the, the replicators have become introspective. They are trying yeah. to answer questions about their own identity, which is very interesting to me. Uh, psychologically, I don't know, it's intellectual science fiction versus action science fiction. An episode that I could have done without, Sight Unseen. What do you think about that one? 
I watched Sight Unseen tonight. Now, when we started doing these history podcasts, I was re-watching before we recorded some of my favorite episodes. And you said, dude, you need to watch your least favorite episode that you haven't watched for five years and see if it's still your least favorite episode. Is Sight Unseen still a least favorite episode for you? I followed your advice. Uh, Sight Unseen is still my least favorite episode of this season. (laughs) It's just not that compelling to me. It's Earth-based... The bugs are interesting. We we find an ancient device that, that when we touch it, we can see into this parallel dimension where there are these, these gigantic bugs that aren't harming anything. And then this is passed through touch and it gets out, out of the base. So it's, it's on Earth. It's trying to figure out what these bugs are. Why can we see them? How can we stop seeing them? How can we prevent panic from, from spreading? And we follow Vernon Sharp around this this gas station attendant who is an Iraqi war vet and is is convinced that the government is experimenting on him. So he's he's running away and trying to escape and buys a plane ticket to Las Vegas. And, uh, okay, well. I think this episode could have been saved had the guest characters actually been interesting. A gas station attendant, former Iraqi war vet, I think they could have come up with someone much better than that. Mm. And if they had someone like a really stellar individual like Dean Stockwell along those lines come in with with a great character to mop up the floor in this episode, I think it really could have saved it. But the guest characters, Vernon Sharp and his mother, are simply uninteresting. Yeah, by the time we get to that scene where Jonas and Sam go and visit Vernon's mother... Uh, I'm I w- thinking to myself, what? Again, I'm kind of, by that point, I'm checked out of the episode because it's, it's. I mean, she's almost a cliche, the little old mom who lives at home and doesn't take her pills and is kind of a little bit off her nut. Smoke and mirrors. Robert Kinsey's rise to power. Kinsey is back. And, he and is, Jack is gone. <laughs> he is shot dead in the opening. I love the teaser for yes. this one. Kinsey gets shot dead. The assassin walks out. And it's Jack O'Neill. On the one hand, you want your characters to be smart and recognize that there are these mimic devices out there that somebody mm-hmm. could have gotten their hands on. But on the other hand, I don't know, it, that conclusion came a bit quickly to me. Uh, but it's a great callback, and uh, we never got to see the foothold aliens again, so I'm glad that at yeah. least we got to see their technology and, and got another piggyback story off of that, which I thought works it really well. Their, the mythology very well, yes. This is also the first really significant episode for Agent Barrett, who'd become a, a significant recurring character in later se- seasons. A big element of it was whether or not Carter could actually trust Barrett because of all the suspicious NID folk that we've had. Barrett is the only one who, as far as we know, you know, has a has a has a clean a clean card. It was fine. That subplot was fine, in my opinion. Uh, it didn't blow me away. I think maybe because there were no there were no surprise twists. Yeah, I like the idea of of attempting to reform the NID because they've yeah. been. I mean, they're a government organization. They're supposed to be good guys. They're they're part of the intelligence community in the in the U.S. and they've been a, a foil for SG One mm-hmm. for five years. And the return of a favorite NID in the very next episode, Tomic Beth as Mayborn. Yep, in Paradise Lost. Digital Red ninety three says the strongest story, direction, and acting for me came in Paradise Lost. It was a cinematic style to everything from the character beats between O'Neill and Mayborn, sweeping camera moves that enhanced emotional POVs and the desaturation of color when Jack experiences the drugged arugula. And Joel Goldsmith's score was terrific. This was our attempt to convince the audience that Jack O'Neill is still on the show. (laughs) So after being imprisoned for for the previous episode and and not in it a whole lot, 
Uh, it's kind of funny to talk this way because of the amount that Rick was in the show later, especially in season eight. We'd kind of gotten used to him not really being involved in the action, if if he was there at all. Season six, I think everybody who was watching it was keenly aware of how much they were using and not using Richard Dean Anderson. I was very aware of it. So yeah, Paradise Lost is Jack, and Jack's big, and, and this dynamic with Mayborn was a stroke of genius when they started doing this in, what was it, season five? Season four with Chain Reaction. Hi, this is John from Seattle, Washington. My favorite season six episode of Stargate SG-1 is Paradise Lost. Richard Dean Anderson and guest star Tom Macbeth are in top form. They clearly relish opportunities to work together. I also like the opening backyard barbecue scene at Casa O'Neill. The fact that O'Neill gets to shoot Mayborn not once but twice. The neat percussion music riffs and echoes signaling that there's definitely something wrong with this planet. And finally, plenty of Sam Jack emotional angst to warm the hearts of shippers everywhere. It was a terrific idea to go point of view and dialogue free for several minutes as Jack begins to methodically piece together the reasons why everyone died horrible deaths, who did it, and how did they do it. Kudos also to Amanda Tapping and Christopher Judge. I thought it was interesting in terms of its, uh, how psychological it was. You know, Mayborn's going nuts. I, I think my favorite line of the entire season is probably uh, when the grenade goes off in the water and Mayborn uh, wades out to get a fish. Jack just says, that's just wrong on so many levels. Um, that is an awesome line. But Mayborn going insane and Jack trying to figure out what's going on and, and discovering that it was the plant life. It's fine. I wish I could say that, man, I loved it, and it's so cool. It's enthralling, suspenseful, but mm-hmm. it was fine. Conceptually, I, I expected more from this one than, than I ended up liking. Hurling technology. Everyone was going nuts about that. Yeah, we knew ahead of time that, that we were going to get a little mention of Furlings, which was one of the the four great races that were allied with the Nox and the Ancients and the Asgard. Uh, so we see their technology, we see the doorway, Jack and Mayborn get transported to this nearby moon. And Mayborn's going there basically because he wants to retire. He's mm-hmm. he's found this, this ancient lore about Paradise Retirement Community. Mm-hmm. And they get there and everybody's been dead for hundreds of years. Hello, this is Paul again, and my favorite SG-1 Season 6 episode is Paradise Lost. Great storyline, great Jack Mayborn interaction, great emotional scenes with Carter. But what really slingshots this episode to the top for me is Bill Garrity's brilliant direction. The tone and atmosphere of Paradise Lost have never been matched. Metamorphosis. We dealt a crushing blow to an old, old enemy near T. This is another one of those episodes where the series is winding down. We need to whack near T because of what happened in Rite of Passage. We let her go, mm-hmm. and we knew that her experiments were going to be started again, and we knew that we were going to be directly responsible for that, so let's create a civilization that we absolutely deserve to be held accountable for. Oh, yeah, and she loves her genetic experimentation. Mm-hmm. Oh, she does. So Nirti not only wants to experiment, she's trying to create a, a, a superior host, a host that has superpowers, a Hoktar. She hits the mother load here. She finds ancient technology. And creates the race of elephant men. Mm-hmm. But elephant men with superpowers. That's right. Hey, I want to be an elephant man with superpowers. Now, would you rather be strikingly good-looking as you are now, or would you rather be an elephant man with superpowers? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. If I have superpowers, 
I'm eventually going to find myself dead, so... Yeah, you'll inevitably try and take over the world, and somebody's going to come along and stop you. No, someone's going to come along and, and take me away and, and do experiments on my elephant body, so no. So, Metamorphosis I also like because uh, Jonah steps up and, and uh, yes. has some some lusty scenes with Nirti. Jacqueline Smuda did great in this episode, and uh, the, the, the low point for me, as far as I'm concerned, was that they killed her. I was really disappointed about that. I thought that they could do a lot more with this character. But, you know, they were winding things down, and they, they offed her. Well, you know, they introduced so many nice system lords, interesting system lord characters over the course of the years. It's I think it's fun to kind of kill one every once in a while. You know, we lose Cronus in Season 4. We lose Apophis in Season 5. It's fun to kill a ghoul every once in a while, as long as you keep making new ones like Ball. Disclosure is the clip show. And as far as clip shows go... Hugely I... pivotal episode. I thought it was very, uh, very well done for a clip show because it's got a great envelope. The, all the, the new footage, the extra scenes where Hammond and Davis are basically explaining the Stargate program to... Britain, China, and France were the big ones. This is a pivotal show. This is the beginnings of the International Oversight Advisory. Man, I can't stand the IOA. I mean, they, they are, I, mean I, I understand that they were introduced to be a problem. Man, they're irritating. This is really the start of that. And uh, Colin Cunningham does a great job in this episode explaining what's really going on. Really what it is, if you want a primer for what the show is, you point your friends to Disclosure. Because what the show is, is basically, there's nothing new in this episode. What they Mm. spend their time talking about is everything that we know, if you've watched the show. I think Colin Cunningham makes this episode work. Don Davis is great in this, and and he's got the, the nice ace up his sleeve that comes in at the end with Thor. But, uh... Major Davis giving this this he he lends a lot of weight, a lot of gravitas mm-hmm. to the explanation mm-hmm. of Earth's situation and its enemies. I mean, it not only it catches you up on on all the major plot points of the season, but uh, it shows that by the end of season six, the Stargate mythology really has a lot of layers to it. Forsaken. Interesting idea. The guys who look like us are the criminals, and the guys who don't look like us, who are shooting us nonetheless, are, are the good guys. The ending was a little bit hard to believe with, with taking one of the uh, criminals back to Earth and getting her into a situation where she's seen a, a Stargate address where there's a planet full of riches. That's kind of a leap. Relying on the fact that that's going to be their destination when they go to the gate. Exactly. But uh, the introduction of the Sirakin and the Hebridean culture as a whole uh-huh. uh, was, was interesting. Interesting. It, it was. It was not only are the, the people who look like us, who are human, are end up being the bad guys because they're thieves and criminals, uh, and the alien-looking creatures are the good guys, but it turns out they are part of the same civilization. They live together on the same mm-hmm. planet. It's really mm-hmm. interesting stuff. I think that the, the the guest characters in this one are really strong overall. Aiden Corso, uh, Martin Cummins was on Poltergeist: The Legacy, and I was a huge fan of Poltergeist. So uh, this is this was a great episode to have him in. The guest characters in Forsaken, I thought, uh, really helped sell this episode. Overall, I'm kind of cold on the episode, but these guest characters I think are all really interesting. Aiden Corso and his his uh, attempting to get on Sam's good side by being charming. Uh, Tannis Raynard on the Earth side of things, back at the SGC, flirting up Jonas. Tannis Raynard, the, the woman thief, is played by Sarah Deacons. And I recognized her later in, in other things that I saw, and I, I went back and discovered that she was Tannis Raynard in Forsaken. She played Rennie 
in Outsiders, a recent season five episode of Atlantis, one of the villagers in Outsiders. And then if you watch the series finale of Battlestar Galactica, she played one of Laura Roslin's sisters. I'll be darned. I did not notice that. Good for you. What about Memento? Memento. Prometheus is is getting ready to finally launch, and she gets left on the other side of the galaxy, Stargate Prometheus, instead of Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. This Memento is another one of those episodes that I think starts out with a really nice premise. Prometheus is is broken down. Uh, we land on a planet that doesn't know that they have a Stargate, so we mm-hmm. need to help them find their Stargate. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and do all the archaeology stuff that uh, and this really awesome shot of raising the Stargate like we saw at yes. the beginning of the original film um, that stuff's beautiful uh, but that's about as far as, as the premise goes and, and it, what it I think devolves into is the military people on this planet who are, are you know hard nosed and closed minded and pig headed yeah. just decide that they want to point all their guns at us because they don't trust us and you have the the element of of some of the citizens, including I think this librarian, uh, who is a a Gould worshiper, but he's perfectly okay with us um, uh, denouncing his god and mm. uh, raising the Stargate and doing all this stuff. And that, that never really made a lot of sense to me. Again, I like the guest actors in here. Robert Foxworth was uh, played a significant character on Babylon yes. Five. He's here as Chairman Ashwan. Uh, John Novak is Colonel Ronson from the Prometheus. Did we ever see what happened to that guy? Did he get killed or just Colonel reassigned? William Ronson? No, they, he, he vanished and was he replaced by re- yeah Got Pendergast, I think. By Pendergast. Ingrid Cavallars is is one of the Prometheus Aaron people Gant. here. We'll see her more in, in the future of the Prometheus. And then uh, the character you were mentioning, uh, his name is Tarek Solomon. Uh, That's the, right. The scientist. He's played by Alex Diakon, who was uh, did a lot of Outer Limits. Memento is uh, kind of a middle-of-the-road episode for me. I think it's it's an interesting premise that kind of turns into a cliche. Mm-hmm. Prophecy is another Jonas story this season. It's picking up on a lot of the, the notes from Metamorphosis. Uh, Jonas gets a superpower of uh, uh, premonitions. It's all the butterfly effect. It's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot more could have been done with this episode. I think it could have been a lot more interesting had they had a little bit more time to, to play with the idea. Uh, I don't understand the ending. I don't understand what he changed, what he did to change the Gould depositing the bomb at, at the foot that of the ramp. That was the coolest part of this episode. It was a neat shot, I think. but, you know... The fact that, that we saw in Jonas's vision uh we saw what would happen why we have this iris what would happen if if jaffa warriors got through here leave this gigantic bomb that we can't stop the entire episode though is about the self-fulfilling prophecy paradox where mm-hmm. you know only because you are aware aware of what's coming do you in fact cause that future to happen so it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense at the end that he's able to avoid this this uh this catastrophe because had he not had the vision to begin with it wouldn't have happened it's nice that they give one to Jonas. I think it is a nice capper for Jonas's story arc, trying to work his way into the team, trying to prove himself to Jack O'Neill. Um, there's a scene that I think they, they wrote for the end of this episode where Jack says to him, you know, get better, hope you feel better soon, we need you out there. And then Jonas has this meaningful look with Sam, who basically saying, okay, well... Colonel O'Neill has finally accepted me, and I'm a part of the team. And, and I don't know. I felt like uh, 
RDA's delivery of that was was a little bit too casual to really have that impact. So I didn't feel like it was really that big payoff for Jonas mm-hmm. being accepted. And the season finale is full circle. What a great episode. A great action-packed hour of TV. Hi, Gate World. My name is Jeremy. I'm from Oregon. It would definitely have to be full circle for me. You'll probably hear that a lot, though. Not only does it have some awesome special effects with Anubis' new ship, it also has great character moments with the extended Daniel fighting Anubis and the uncertainty of what happened to him after he tried to fight Anubis and was pulled away by Alma. The sadness with the deaths of all the Abydos people. It has everything, yes, so it's so great. And it's definitely in my top five favorite Stargate episodes of all time. Full Circle is the return of Daniel Jackson. Is it a guest appearance? Is he back for good? We didn't know and they didn't know at this point. This is a Daniel show, as far as I'm concerned. And it is a team show. Uh, Anubis has come to Abydos. He gets surrounded by the System Lord fleet. And once he gets the, the Eye of Ra, he blows those system lords to smithereens. That was sweet. That was an excellent sequence. Not to mention the, the pyramid blowing up. The return of Alexis Cruz's Scara for the first time in three years. That was a welcome return. Yeah, I was worried at this point that, that they weren't going to bring him back after he got degoulded in pretense. What do you feel about the whole Abedonians being ascended and everybody, all of our allies who die, they get ascended? You know, this, this, this turn that the show was taking with that. Yeah, that was pretty huge. That was the title of this episode, Full Circle, is very appropriate. Going back to Abydos, which is where Jack O'Neill and Daniel Jackson started. The fate of the Abedonian people is hugely significant. I mean, it's a fundamental part of... of Stargate history and the fabric of the Stargate universe, even though we haven't really seen them a whole lot. You know, Kasuf mm-hmm. pops up every once in a while. But uh, unfortunately, Kasuf is not in this episode. And we just mm-hmm. have to presume that he was killed and, and ascended with everybody else. I like the fact that it comes back around full circle. Again, we, th- we thought that this was going to be the last episode of the series. Ending the show with that was a nice decision. I wish that more would have come of it, that uh, maybe... Oma would have gotten in a big stink of trouble mm-hmm. over doing that uh, with the other ancients. What do you think? I think a lot comes of it, especially with Daniel. Because of this incident with Anubis, him trying to kick Anubis's butt, everything that comes from Season 7 and some of Season 8 happens because of this one incident. It does, yeah, for Daniel, but not for Oma. Oma doesn't ever seem to uh, have to face anything for ascending all of the Abedonians. Jackson says season six is as excellent as the rest of the first eight seasons. As much as I love Daniel, I thought this edition of Jonas was wonderful and supplied a great rookie dynamic for the team. Jonas never tried to be Daniel, and I love the fact that it took time for Jack to warm up to him. When you look at season six overall, you know, you have to evaluate Jonas. You have to evaluate the contribution that Corin Nemec made to the show, and you're not only on a new network, but more significantly, you are trying to... See if the show can continue without a a key part of the team, which is another experiment that we would end up doing in seasons eight and nine with the loss of Jack O'Neill. So what do you think? Was it successful? I think season six was a fine year, but it is by far not my favorite. I'm going to have to give the season a four out of ten. Wow, that low. Yep. It surprises me that you go that low. I I look at the episodes, and and I tally them based on one 
This is an episode that I would watch off the cuff if I could stick one in. Or Zero, this is an episode that I would not watch off the cuff. And when it comes down to it, there are nine episodes in Season 6 that I would watch off the cuff. Season 6 overall, it's a good year. Um, but, but, you know, for the first time, I think it's kind of starting to, to slowly head down uh, from the best of the best. So there are some fantastic episodes in this season. Abyss is in my top three of the entire series. I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Thanks to everybody for contributing to this week's discussion. Next week is our big 50th episode bash. It's the 50th installment of the Gate World podcast on July 8th. So we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to kick back, shoot the breeze, talk about what's on our minds, and we'll have some special guests on the show. Just talk about Stargate, talk about other stuff. We'll see how it goes. It's a party. But that also means we have no listener question this week. Sorry. So just sit back and tune in. It'll be an interesting experiment. I really have no idea what to expect from this. And maybe it won't be entertaining at all. But if Stargate can do Wormhole Extreme in 200... No, by golly, we can... Surely we can do this. July 15th, we'll come back and talk about relationships in Stargate. Do you ship? You'll be wanting to tune in if you do. Hopefully we can get Tammy on that one. Oh, there's no way that we could do that one without her. I think if you and I just talked about shipping, it would be weird. We would have no depth whatsoever. And then in three weeks' time, on July 22nd, we'll be back to Stargate History and talk about SG-1 Season 7. That's our show for this week. Thanks once again for tuning in. This week, David and I talked about SG-1 Season 6 and gave you a preview of our upcoming interview with Colleen Renison, Cassandra on SG-1. Look for that on the site in just a few days. And for everything we talked about today, if you want links to those episodes, to those characters, head over to GateWorld and look for the episode 49 show notes. Join us on the show by calling into the hotline at 616-712-1647. You can also post text and the podcast feedback thread in the GateWorld forum. And from GateWorld, he's David. And he's Darren. And you've been listening to the Gate World Podcast.